Good evening, everybody. Thank you all. Thank you all very much for coming and for, uh, for patiently waiting for the event to start. Without further ado, I'd like to say that it is. It gives me tremendous pleasure and is really a huge honour to introduce Professor Amina Wadud, whose work on Islam and on gender has been an inspiration to me over the last several years and her ideas really shaped the course I taught last year and it was kind of incredible to me to think that she could actually come to Stanford and lecture to you and talk to the community and talk to the students. It's a, it's a great honour. I'd like to um, briefly introduce her just by saying that Professor Wadud is the author of a number of extremely important books for the field, starting with Quran uh, and Woman, reading this, rereading the sacred text from a woman's perspective in 1999 with Oxford University Press, and then in 2006, Inside the Gender Jihad, Women's Reform in Islam. She's also written a, an introduction to Islam, a reader, in 2007, and then recently has been the subject of a collected set of essays in her honour, edited by Keisha Ali, Julianne Hammer and Laurie Silvers in 2012, A Jihad for Justice, honouring the work and life of Amina Wadud. Which kind of sounds like it was the, the, the past tense, but the, the great thing about this is that we know, we know for sure that it isn't. The event this evening and, and, and Professor Wadud's visit has been sponsored by the Stanford Initiative for Religious and Ethnic Understanding and Coexistence, supported by the President's Fund, the Sahib and Sara Abbasi Program in Islamic Studies, the Program in African and American Studies, the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity, the Stanford Humanities Center, the Stanford Muslim Students Awareness Network, and the Department of Comparative Literature. That long list, I think, is testament to the amount of people who care about her visit and who are interested in supporting it. And I'm just uh, the last person at the end of a long list to be very honoured. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor Dude. I begin, as always, in the name of Allah, whose grace I seek in this and all other matters. I uh, want to thank uh, 
all of that long list of uh, departments and programs that uh, invited me. Uh, I would not be able to repeat them all, so you just have to take it for granted that I mean it. Uh, and uh, also to uh, thank uh, Alex for his, uh, Professor Keys for his uh, hospitality. Um, and uh, before I start, um, uh, we all uh, stand on the shoulders of um, others that have gone before us. And I stand on the shoulder of Nabila Mango, who was my Arabic teacher more than 40 years ago. <laughs> really uh, an honor and a pleasure to know her and to be in her presence. Uh, so anyway, uh, talk a little bit about jihad in our times. And I want you to think about the uh, words from the song that Shira sing, words are like weapons. They wound you sometimes. Because words are very powerful. But words can also be very confusing. Two people can be talking about something using the same terminology, but meaning totally different things. So whose usage will hold sway? And what are the factors involved in obtaining and sustaining power over meanings? Furthermore, language is not a dead thing. It is alive. It changes as we use it. Think of the word text. When I use it as a Quran scholar, I probably mean the Quranic text as sacred scripture, as revelation. But look how powerful popular usage is. Now, the word text, a noun, has become a verb, as in, can you text me when you're ready? <laughs> I chose the title for my second book, Inside the Gender Jihad, from within a complete context. 20 years ago, August 1994 to be precise, I was in South Africa for the first time. It was also my first time meeting Muslim men who advocated living the struggle for gender justice. They coined the phrase gender jihad to identify this struggle. They also coined the phrase economic jihad. This was a tiny beginning for what to me is now self-evident. And that is, unless you engage all aspects of discrimination and prejudice, your particular focus is not really valid. In the South African context, the Muslims I was meeting had engaged in the struggle to end apartheid. Unless you think by the very nature of their being almost exclusively non-white in the South African context, that uh, somehow the Muslims would naturally all be engaged uh, in the struggle to end apartheid. Actually, conservative Muslims in South Africa took the position that they were not really a part of this was a nationalist or a political thing. This did not involve them. Of course, once it was over, they decided that they should be amongst the first in line to be beneficiaries of the successful eradication of apartheid. But Muslim progressives were clear only by addressing the intersectionality of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and all other aspects of human identity would the true gridlock of apartheid be broken. That is because one aspect feeds into another. Keep this in mind. I was moved by their commitment. It was one of those pivotal moments in my life 
when my own quiet and moderate conservatism, and Nabila can attest to that, I was pretty conservative, uh, was shaken from its complacency. The challenge opened up before me to consider all aspects of human interaction that violate the dignity of another person as part of the struggle. I stepped willingly into that location, and frankly, I have never looked back. Indeed, I could say I was inspired to keep mindful of the matter of intersectionality by that visit to South Africa at that time, which coincidentally was the celebration of 100 days of the Nelson Mandela presidency. Of course, 10 years later, when writing chapters for Inside the Gender Jihad, I strove to bring the significance of that epiphany and its resulting self-transformation into my book. Here we are, another 10 years later, since the publication of Inside the Gender Jihad, and I am still committed to engaging the intersectionality of oppressions. I do so from what I call in the book a faith perspective. But I'm also part of a larger conversation or conversations and transformations that impact my capacity to focus singularly on any one of those intersecting parts because they are also sometimes competing for justice, honor, and dignity. However, this evening, I will mostly focus on the particular aspect of gender gender mainstreaming, gender justice, gender symmetry, reading for gender, the gender jihad, and what Islam has to do with it. This is because the most newsworthy aspect of Islam and Muslims in the public space internationally has problematized Islam, problematized our self-definitions, increased the disempowerment of Muslims in respect to agency and representation, unlike what was at stake in 1994 in South Africa. At that time, I still had equal opportunity, along with South African Muslim activists and scholars, indeed all activists and scholars who are Muslim, to claim control over the public discourse about us and about our aspirations. This degree of self-identification, self-naming, and self-representation has been eroded, and not without the contributions of our fellow Muslims across the globe. Thus, the term jihad could have kept its multi-dimensional location. That location started with the Prophet Muhammad, upon him be peace, who reminded the men around him, his companions, when returning from military struggle you are now returning from the lesser jihad. You have still to engage in the greater jihad, jihad of nefs. That is the jihad of the soul. At the time of this statement, then, the term jihad was linked to its root form, which means effort or exertion, the conscious engagement or effort to bring about a change. That effort could be physical, even military. But the dimension that the prophet prioritized was the spiritual exertion, the effort to bring about a change of consciousness, a change in the soul. And the Quran says, 
لا يغير الله أحوال قوم حتى يغير ما بأنفسهم. Allah does not change the condition of a people until they first change what is in their souls. There it is again, the prioritization of the deep and earnest inward change as a prerequisite for even external change. One other aspect of this sort of effort I wish to put out there is with regard to a form of the root word which means intellectual effort or exertion, the effort to understand, to comprehend, or to interpret the truth, and that's called ijtihad. The origins of any conversation about jihad within the framework of Islamic primary sources must also prioritize in accordance to that hadith and this Quranic passage. As I stood on the precipice of my own engagement in the struggle for gender justice, the gender jihad, I had thought this conscious link back to that authoritative source would lend greater credibility to the struggle itself. This tendency to reference Islamic primary sources is fraught with challenges in and of itself and yet remains in my mind and, uh, and with regard to progressive Islamic reform indispensable. Most people wish to read the sources as definitive, close, static, and two-dimensional, black and white, right and wrong. Yet reading for nuances has been the principal characteristic of my life's work, starting with rereading the sacred text from a woman's perspective through the movement for equality and justice in Muslim family law, or Musawa. There has never been any attempt on my part to distance myself from some understanding of Islam as crucial to that struggle. So coining Islamically authentic phraseology is not so far-fetched. However, I cannot ignore that we have lost the battle over this particular term, jihad. We have lost the prophetic system of prioritization. We have even lost a prophetic reluctance in engaging militarily after his own 13-year nonviolent career. We have lost the rules even for the engagement in military jihad. The terms jihad and jihadist have become irrevocably linked to violence of the most horrific kind against innocent Muslims or non-Muslims. It is a travesty to lose this phrase, especially to this particularly troublesome aspect of Muslim behavior. It is a loss to us all that a term which should capture liberation both existentially and materially has now been brought to its current identification with gross human rights violations and despicable violence. But still, this is a good way to talk about the significance of terminology and the part it plays in the struggle for gender reform. So there are several key terms which I will discuss here relative to the gender reform movement and alas, jihad no longer plays a part in it. However, like this consideration of the term jihad, some terms really need unpacking. That is because in their transformative significance, these terms are constructed and contested. That means whoever uses them and has the power over their usage and meaning 
can determine the parameters of their application. In this case, I would like to move us towards the terms Islamic feminism. Now this started for me in 1995 when I went to the Beijing Conference for Women. So that's 20 years ago this fall. And what was interesting is at that particular conference there was more Muslim women present than at any of the other annual conferences and actually than any of the subsequent ones. And because there were so many Muslims present from different parts of the world, um, they made a decision that we should form a caucus of Muslim women. And so every night they would come together and shout at each other. <laughs> and um, I always use this moment as sort of the springboard for you know what has evolved for me personally in terms of terminology in uh, the Islamic gender reform. There were two main parties present. And again, the terms that I use for these um, presents are not the terms I would have used at that time. These are terms that now I think best capture what was happening, and I want to explain what the relationship between the two of them is in terms of the development of you know, what has been really a new kid on the block, and that is the term Islamic feminism. Um, one loud and outspoken component of that discussion was led by what I now call Muslim secular feminist. Um, and these were people who were willing to identify as feminist and whose objective was to remove religion from the debates of rights, uh, human rights, uh, women's rights, women's human rights, because there could be a difference for some people. Um, and uh, this was particularly attached to the construction and the implementation and the platforms for the implementation of CEDA, the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. For some members of uh, these various meetings uh, in Beijing and Hawaii, the understanding was that CEDAW captured everything that needed to be captured. It was universal. It was um, human rights oriented. And um, the best way for us to be able to actually achieve justice on the ground would be to you know, follow uh, that CEDAW trajectory. More importantly, there are people who were adamant that we had to keep religion out of the debates, that religion itself Islam in particular was uncompromisingly patriarchal and that there was no way to go forward with Islam in hand. Some of these people identify their own faith location as personal. In other words, religion is personal, so what I do with it is not, you know, it's not a matter of public discourse or policy debates, uh, it's just my own personal choice. Uh, so there is a spectrum. Doesn't mean that when they say to remove religion from the debates, that they also do not have some uh, orientation towards it themselves. But they were adamant that it should not be an element in the debates, and in fact, they were adamant that you cannot have both Islam and human rights. So you have to choose. 
the best choice, of course, is human rights. The other party that was present, also very loud, very boisterous, now I would identify as the Islamists. And the Islamist voice agreed that you could not have both Islam and human rights. And if there had to be a choice, then you should take Islam. Now, the group that I was with had a problem with the location of both of these, but we really did not have a strategy or a coherent set of goals, and we really didn't know what the problem was in terms of this conversation that was going on between human rights uh, and Islam. But because both of these groups agreed that you could not have Islam and human rights, they had already set the stage in terms of their location with these terms, and they both territorially stood behind one position or the other, either human rights or Islam. And what needed to happen was an interrogation of both the terms human rights and Islam. And then when that happened, it was actually possible to move the debates forward. Because heretofore, the definition of Islam had to sustain, sustain certain patriarchal parameters and directions and uh, reflections and control over the praxis of uh, certain aspects of all human life, male and female. And heretofore, human rights had to be without religion and, um, in fact, religion, you know, got in the way. So the process whereby we needed to move the conversation from the place where, for example, feminism was uh, too narrow to contain Islam or to include Islam, and where Islam was not universal enough to embrace feminism, was to step back and determine not only who was defining the terms, but who had the power to define the terms, and how were the terms being defined. And then lastly, how to empower yourself with regard to those terms. And that took us some time. And the reason why it took us some time was because in the binary that was being created between the Islam or human rights, uh, people put us into one camp or the other. They would say, well, you're an Islamist because you won't give up Islam. Uh, and of course the Islamists would say, you're a secular feminist because you won't give up human rights. And we finally understood that, yes, that's exactly what it is. We are both in favor of human rights and in favor of Islam, but we feel and therefore, we must demonstrate how it is necessary for us to give the definitions of these two terms and to set the parameters of how they were used. It wasn't very hard to do this with regard to feminism and with regard to human rights. Because feminism at least projected itself as both the epistemology and the strategy of the inclusion of women as full human beings. That's how it projected itself. Uh, that it had been, 
the purview of certain privileged women within the context of human discourse and the diversity of human communities was an issue that was also being addressed within feminism itself. So understanding its impact on the articulation of Islam and feminism was not so much a stranger to uh, its own self-examination. But the thing about Islam is that we are not taught to believe that we have control over what Islam means. We're taught that Islam is somewhere out there, probably coming from the heavens down to us, and that the only way to be truly Muslim is to embrace the definitions as they are uh, projected upon you. The capacity to be able to take control over the definition of Islam was the, was the thing that was most problematic. We had decided that every articulation of Islam comes from some place. That is, everybody has something that inspires them to define Islam in the way that they define it, and that the sources of those definitions had to be shared by others in the conversation doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but at some point you have to be able to at least set some kind of brackets on the conversation so you can see whether or not you're actually talking together or if you're actually talking uh, in distinction from each other. And usually the route to coming at some kind of definition of Islam was through the uh, primary sacred sources. That is the Quran as revelation from Allah to the Prophet Muhammad, upon him be peace, and the Prophet's own statements, or a hadith in plural, of hadith, and his own actions, or normative practices, or a sunnah. And that Muslims have engaged in these two sources from the beginning of those sources, that is, from the time of the first revelation, Muslims engage in understanding what those sources mean to really how you live your life. That's why we call it deen. And uh, once the prophet uh, left us, which was inevitable, that is, he dies, um, Muslims continue to engage in those two sources and then to construct systems of law. And those systems of law were heavily impacted by the chief architects of this intellectual engagement, which coincidentally happened to be men. Now, I can give you the nuances of the extent of women's participation down to certain particular details. Like, for example, the memorization of hadith was not a science that was exclusive to men. But that's not what I'm talking about. I wasn't talking so much about the repetition of phrases without the agency and um, sort of the intellectual nuance of you know, the individual. I was talking about the places where we start to construct the basic paradigms of operation. How do you actually understand Quran? How do you actually understand Hadith, how do you actually utilize prophetic sunnah in our lives? Or have we come up to a time, for example, where a depiction of the prophet somehow is in such a great violation of everything that you know, somehow you know, human life is not even important with regard to it 
to, to it. So there, there, there has always been this engagement with what is the parameters of meaning of the application of these sources, and even how these sources themselves can be understood when they have an objective of a complete way of life. It's not as if they are a complete way of life only for 7th century Arabia. They are actually supposed to be for all times and all places. And taking the agency to engage in that kind of understanding and engage in what they mean for us and engage in what it means in terms of establishing systems, that is laws and policies, um, has been one of the aspects of the work that's been done in terms of uh, Islam and gender justice. Um, so Islamic feminism seeks to establish a new egalitarian epistemology of Islam based on its own primary sources. But unless you tackle fully the sort of canonization and the codification of a patriarchal way of thinking, uh, you might come into conflict with other people's ways of thinking about Islam or thinking about Islamic primary sources or think about thinking about Islamic epistemology or thinking about Islamic praxis. And the thing about patriarchy is because it's not unique to Islam, uh, it doesn't have even, even a particular manifestation in Islam. It just becomes insidiously um, connected to the way every aspect of Islam and even Islamic primary sources are being understood and to the methods that are used in order to bring it into implementation. And that thinking, in my mind, is best or most clearly articulated by a vertical line from top to bottom. And in systems that acknowledge faith or belief in an ultimate reality uh, like God or Allah, uh, the highest point on this vertical line would certainly be God. But the patriarchal rubric of understanding actually puts uh, gradation from God to man to woman in such a way that God stands in a place that's not immediately connected to the woman but becomes mediated through the man. And if you look at different aspects of the ways in which Islamic uh, thought and practice and certain aspects of Islamic or Muslim cultures manifest, this is the way that it is. Take, for example, the family, which is the primary uh, unit of any society. In Islamic law, the identity of the woman is not adjudicated with regard to her as simply a believer in God and a practitioner of that belief on the earth, it is adjudicated on the basis of her relationship to the patriarchal family. So it is only how well she fits into that family model that her rights uh, are even being discussed. So take, for example, uh, in Jordan, if a man marries a non-Jordanian woman and they have children, then his children will become full Jordanian <coughs> citizens. Makes sense, right? But if a Jordanian woman marries a non-Jordanian man, then she cannot pass her Jordanian citizenship over to those children. 
So what is the difference? Where does the difference lie? And when you can step back and see that you cannot have a notion of equal citizenship that is based on the privileging of men and men's ways of being, then you can see that no matter if you ascribe these differences to Islam or not, you have in fact constructed them on your own and you have then used Islam as the basis for justifying this kind of construction. So this is what happens and this is what happened from the time of the meeting in 1995. Because the main thing that was being discussed there was CEDA, the Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And actually, most Muslim nation states um, are signatories to CEDA. I think there's like seven countries that have not, United States being among them, although it's not considered a Muslim nation state. Uh, and um, yeah, I hope you knew that. Um, and yet, even when Muslim countries will sign to CEDO, they will hold reservations to certain parts of it. And the grounds that they will use to hold their reservations is you can't do that in Islam. That goes against Islam. That goes against our religion. And so when these two sides came together uh, for these impossible nightly meetings, what was being taken for granted was this unnamed, undefined, unclarified aspect of Islam or our religion did in fact mean that you could not have equality and justice. It did in fact mean that um, there were certain, what we tend to understand as patriarchal limitations on the equality and justice for all. So what we had to do is to go back and to interrogate what was being used as the meaning for Islam that itself was limiting. And for me, that kind of you know, sort of vertical thinking was the clearest way to be able to, to get at uh, it because in that vertical line, it was okay if someone interfered with the direct relationship between a woman, say, and God. So in my mind, I kept thinking we need another model. And the model that I came up with, which I hope some of you already know by now, is called the Tawhidic paradigm. And in that paradigm, it is necessary for both the male and the female to have a direct and unmitigated relationship with God. That is, if you believe in the idea of the supremacy of the ultimate being. And to have a direct relationship with God, unmediated by another person, meant that as a in product, then one person could have but one kind of relationship with another person, and that is on the line of horizontal reciprocity. Okay, so each person can replace the other person as long as both is placed in the same relationship with regard to God. And when we did this, just by way of sort of paradigm shift, just by way of not always subjecting ourselves to male interpretation and male privilege and the patriarchal family, but rather to keep family but make family uh, about equality and reciprocity. When we did this, um, we had to kind of trace it back in terms of our entire Islamic intellectual tradition and think about um, the notion of human rights. 
And the notion of human rights, like these other constructs, has a history. It came into being at a certain time, and that had to do with the wars in the North, uh, called world wars, although a lot of people in the South don't know why, because they weren't part of it. But anyway, we still call them world wars. And after the wars were over, lo and behold, we discovered that, oh, gee, as human beings, we can do horrific things to other human beings. Uh, when we have uh, certain interests, Guantanamo Bay comes to mind uh, for our current situation, we can do horrible things to other human beings if we have some other objective that we're trying to uh, achieve. And somehow these horrible things have some implication for the notions of what we even understand as human being, let alone human rights. But the idea of human rights does not belong simply to the post-World War debate and the establishment of the United Nations. That is only the mechanism through which it became popularized in um, sort of uh, human psyche. We now all talk about it uh, all the time as if people have always talked about it using that exact same terminology rather than to accept that that terminology came into vogue within a certain context. Because all philosophical systems, all spiritual systems, all religions have a notion of what it means to be a human being. And Islam has a notion of what it means to be a human being that you can glean from its primary sources. And the primary objective of being a human being is I will create on the earth a khalifa, an agent an agent of God. Now, an agent of God for some people means that you do specific things in a specific way. So let me rephrase this notion. God is not separate from us. Okay? And God is in, as in, is present in the smallest of the smallest of the smallest thing that we can not only see, but that we can even imagine. But God is not limited to that because God is also greater than the largest and the furthest of the largest of the things that we can imagine in the universe. Okay? So when I say that you become an agent of God, what I mean is you become an agent of the divine order. And that order is already manifest in everything in the creation. In fact, it's manifests beautifully in everything in the creation. So you actually have as your goal, as a khalifa, the manifestation of beauty and order and harmony in the creation. That's what it means to be a khalifa of God. It doesn't mean that you just pray five times a day or you wear certain types of clothes or you eat certain types of food or you avoid certain types of behaviors. It means that every aspect of your being to be fully human must respond to everything in the universe in such a way as to establish it unconditionally not only for yourself but for everything else in the universe. That's what it means to be a khalifa. And when you take this conversation about human rights away from a kind of you know, vertical thinking of hegemony and you replace it back into something that 
not only can but must be established for all human beings, no matter you know what their race, no matter what their uh, ethnicity, no matter what their religion, no matter what their sexual orientation, no matter what their gender, no matter what their height, no matter what their ability or disability. Once you take it and you put it back <clears throat> to something that belongs to each of us equally, then it is not possible for you to form primary units, that is families, that do not respond to this level of equality and reciprocity. And lo and behold, that model also exists in the Quran. Even though this sort of hierarchical model was the one that gave its um, favor to the construction of Islamic jurisprudence, the Quran does say, and he has made between you uh, intimately loving mercy and compassion that there's a possibility of constructing another model of family based on equality and reciprocity. So we use that as an inspiration to develop what we're now calling Musawa, which is a movement for equality and justice in the Muslim family, one that affirms the dignity of all members of all kinds of families, and one that is done out of explicit inspiration from our understanding of Islam. And this, then, was the birth of Islamic feminism. Islamic feminism says Islam belongs to all of us. All of us have a stake, not only in how our religion is defined, but also how religious ideas are implemented in public policies and in our homes. Furthermore, Islamic feminism says Notions about women's subservience are results of certain medieval constructions reflecting the understandings of jurists and philosophers at that time. But they are not divine constructions. We are free to understand divine construction for ourselves and in our context. When we do this, we unveil a much broader vista of gender possibilities than heretofore practiced or imagined. In our context, justice, that essential principle inherent in all Islamic texts, must be in accordance to ideas and practices of equality and reciprocity. Thank you very much.